Hello, and welcome to Follow the Woo podcast, where each week I, Fenelong Kush, will guide you on a journey into the land of the woo. We're going to investigate witchcraft, meditations, the paranormal and supernatural, alien and fae encounters, gurus, shamanism, and, and, and all the woo. So hold on to your butt. This just might be the weirdest part of your day. Hello, humans. This week's episode is part two of my interview with Lisa Cohn and Jen Kiaba, two women who escaped from the infamous Unification Church, a.k.a. the Moonies Cult. If you haven't listened to part one of this interview, you may want to do that first so you know where we're dropping in here. Just a quick recap. The Unification Church was officially founded in 1954 in South Korea by Sun Myung Moon, a Korean religious leader and self-appointed messiah. This toxic cult is still running today. In fact, it's quite successful. Even though Sun Myung Moon is dead, his wife, Hak Jahan, is now in charge of this multi-billion dollar empire. That's right, billions of dollars. Talk about immense amounts of generational trauma. Jen Kiaba is an artist and educator who was born in the Unification Church. After escaping a forced arranged marriage, she fought her way out in her early 20s and went on to earn her BA in art history at Bard College. As an artist, she uses photography to explore the failure of faith and the resulting loss of identity that occurs. She also writes and speaks about art, healing, and their intersection. Lisa Cohn is a New Yorker who owns a leadership consulting and executive coaching firm and spends much of her time speaking, writing, teaching, and presenting her ideas and approaches to life and to business. She's also the author of To the Moon and Back, A Childhood Under the Influence, which is her story about untangling herself from the challenges and complexities of being involved with the Unification Church. While we're on the topic of cults, if you haven't seen the Vow series on HBO Max about the Nexium cult, you should definitely check it out. Both Jen and Lisa reference it in this interview, and it really helps you understand the way cults work. They really do all sort of work the same way. In part two, we jump right into a discussion about that weird squiggly line between cultivating and maintaining boundaries in and around toxicity and having compassion for those perpetuating toxic behavior because of generational trauma. We also talk about racism, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia in the Unification Church, and the emotional processes of untangling from this cult. I'm going to take a minute here to read the prologue of To the Moon and Back, A Child Under the Influence, because it's so damn good. It really is a page-turner. I highly recommend you read it. All right, here we go. My brother says that we were raised by wolves. I don't always agree with him, but I don't have a more accurate description of our upbringing. A friend of my dad's pointed out that wolves raise their young with more structure than our parents gave us. At first, I had no idea that anything was wrong with my childhood. Yeah, my dad was a hippie bartender who convinced my brother to smoke pot at the age of 10 and who offered to sell me to his friends for drugs. He was kidding. Yeah, I was running the household when I was 11, shopping, cooking, cleaning, because at that point, both my parents were gone. Yeah, my brother and I were left to fend for ourselves way more than you might say is optimal. And yeah, I grew up in a cult. My mom was a Mooney, 
and therefore, so were my brother and I. For those who don't know what that means, the Moonies were members of the Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity, simply known as the Unification Church, the cult of all cults in the American age of cults. Church members gave their faith, lives, and worldly possessions to a self-proclaimed Messiah from South Korea. Some call it brainwashing. It was my life. I knew it was weird, but I didn't know it was bad. When it's all you know, it's all you know. You have no grasp that it could or should be different. I knew I could tell stories about my parents and people would laugh in disbelief, but I was oblivious to the fact that my stories covered up pain and emotional scars and that much of what happened to me shouldn't have happened at all. I didn't realize I was harmed or that I was on a path of harming myself as I got older. I ended up in abusive relationships, anorexia, and, quote, mild drug addiction, to name a few things. But it didn't register that these were because I ached so much inside. I didn't know that my psyche was bruised or that I despised myself. As a kid, you misinterpret the nasty things that happen to and around you, and you somehow believe you're to blame. As a young adult, I internalized this more and more. As an older adult, I still can. I can get lost in darkness and desperation. I can feel unworthy or damaged or hopeless. I have my scars and insecurities, my fears that feel like they'll engulf me. I can be washed over with shame. But they're moments. As I said to my older child once when they struggled against their own demons, the waves of despair become less powerful and hit you less often. I've learned to face my terrors and to allow myself joy. It wasn't always an easy thing to do. I've learned that it's up to each of us to create the life we desire. We have the ability to lessen the influences around us that we don't want or don't agree with. When we can't lessen them, we have the ability to keep going despite them, even when we think we don't. Oof, this book is intense and vulnerable and, again, really highlights that internal conflict, and you should definitely read it. These are stories of survival and resilience, and it was such an honor to speak with these women. I want to put out a warning here for anyone who has been in a deeply traumatic and or cultic or religious abusive situation. We do discuss some topics that may be triggering. Remember to stay tuned to the very end to hear about Jen and Lisa's very woo experiences and some direct quotes from Mr. Moon himself. All right, so if you're feeling safe and ready, let's get into part two of my chat with Jen Kiaba and Lisa Cohn. There's a Buddhist concept that those who are the hardest to love are the ones who need it the most, and so you should actually give more compassion to the ones who are in this circumstance, the abuser, because they're the ones that have the darkest dark in them and they need more and more love. This is such an extremely difficult concept to embody, I know, for everyone. Lisa, I know you said before that you still, to this day, can't say negative things about Moon. But Jen, you have a little bit of a different feeling, right? And both are totally valid. But are you still on that end where you're like, fuck the abuser? I think that Buddhist concept, while beautiful, can be 
misused and it can keep people from setting appropriate boundaries. Like my parents are both incredibly abusive. I have a lot of compassion for them, but I still set boundaries to protect myself. And so I think that I agree with Lisa in that all of these people, Moon himself may have suffered incredible abuse. I mean, he was in a labor death camp in North Korea, suffered horrible abuse, but in no way does it justify the ways in which these people have abused others. So I don't have a problem condemning the abuser because I think to Lisa's point earlier, it's all about breaking generational trauma, right? Otherwise, I could take the abuse that I suffered and use it as justification to do fuck all to anybody, right? So I remember I was out a few years and somebody else who was out said to me, Jen, you know that Moon's a con man, right? And I had that exact same reaction that you talk about having, Lisa, where it's like my whole body just went into these tremors. And so even though I said, yes, I know, intellectually, I knew, I did have that fear response. And luckily, that's something that I think I've been able to mostly work through my system. Mm -hmm. But it's still interesting because sharing our stories is still a very scary thing many times. Like there's still that fear of retribution. There's still that fear of like... Someone will hurt me for showing my true self. And I think that the thing that I keep saying is like, it is really proof that you grew up in an abusive environment if just sharing your own story is something that causes you fear. Again, I just go back to like, okay, but I was abused. That I can put on the group. I can put that on the cult. And yes, I can have compassion for a lot of the first generation. I can have compassion for Hakshahan and the quote, true children. And it still doesn't change what they did and are continuing to do. And I think that many of them are aware of what they're doing. And that's the part that's really hard. Maybe not the first generation, but I think like the moon children for sure know what they're doing. They know that this is a con that they're participating in. Unless they're so pickled too, I don't know. <laughs> but I think enough of them were aware what was happening. Jump in and say, so I agree with everything Jen said. <laughs> and I am proud. I can now speak negatively about Moon, but it took a long time to get there. Someone once asked me, do you think Moon thought he was the Messiah? And I say, mm -hmm. I think that enough people bow to you and take their shoes off when they come into the room and treat you with reverence, you start to believe it. So if I were to think, I don't know, Sean Moon, right? He wasn't born when I was in. I bet he actually believes in his own shit, which doesn't forgive it anymore. It's still the same thing. But I absolutely agree that you can't condone the behavior wherever it came from, but to still have compassion for how somebody got that way. That is a hard thing to do, but I also agree that it can be a slippery slope. And how do you, then that can make it okay. And the whole thing is it's not okay. You know, when I tell my story, I don't feel like I'm going to get retribution. I feel like I'm sinful and deserve to mm. die. Yeah, I was best friends with one of Moon's kids. And then a whole soap opera thing happened with one of my other friends, a blessed child. And so Moon made a decree to basically keep me away from his kids. So I like to say the Messiah banished me. So like, I knew I was sinful. The Messiah told me I was sinful. So my gut response is not someone's going to come after me. It, it's just this shame and inner revulsion mm. that I am much better at, but still is my first <laughs> guttural response. Because I took it all as truth that I was that wrong mm. in so many ways mm. you know right. it's just it's fascinating that it's still there i want to talk about the beliefs really quickly jen on our preliminary call we talked about 
racism, homophobia, the arranged marriages, things like that. A lot of people don't know that the Unification Church believes in these things. Sometimes they think they're just all love and light. But when you get into the nitty gritty, explain to Mm -hmm. me some of these more, I guess, extreme ideologies that they have. So a lot of the Unification Church is based on Korean culture. And I have had Korean friends who have told me that Korean culture is racist. I think that human beings generally are racist. So I'm just going to put that disclaimer out there that, you know, we have structural racism in every culture. But Moon believed that Korean people were the chosen people. He really did not like Western people, especially American women. He said that American women were descended from a line of prostitutes and American women were trash cans. And he hated the Japanese because he grew up under Japanese occupation. And so he has really abused the Japanese membership. They have to pay like extra retributions Every month they have to pay something called Kodan, which is like on top of tithing, there's this extra like $500 penalty for being Japanese. One of the providences that Moon introduced when I was about 12 was ancestor liberation. And so the church believes that all sickness, whether it's mental illness, cancer, you name it, is caused by evil spirits, mostly our ancestors, attaching themselves to our bodies and attacking us. So in the case of Unification Church members, it's like, if you do something wrong, your ancestors are going to attack you. You know, So you have to stay on the straight and narrow because you are living at the time of the Messiah and you know the truth. So you can't stray because if you do, ancestors will attack you. So you all have to go to Cheongpyeong, which is this resort town in Korea that the moons own a huge piece of property on. And that's where that Ansu hitting yourself ritual comes in. So Koreans have to pay the least amount of money to liberate their ancestors. And then Westerners have to pay like a middle number. And then the Japanese have to pay the most. So in order to liberate all of your ancestors, according to the number that the Unification Church has figured out, it's like $12,000 for an American, much less for a Korean, much more for a Japanese. And then the Black community in the Unification Church, I feel like was just treated horribly. There are testimonies of Moon bringing up a Black member during a matching or something. And kind of like what he did to your mother, Lisa, he was like, so who would want to marry this person? Who would want to take on the baggage of a Black person? Because again, I think that there is that racism in Korea. I was told that Korean people do not like Black people. So whether or not that was part of Moon's ideology and reason for treating people that way, I don't know. But my observation as a child was that it was very, very rare to see people of color in leadership positions unless they were Korean or Japanese. And then there was the patriarchal piece of it where it was usually men in leadership. So the fact that his daughter ran things and now the wife is leading things is sort of a a new advent thing. Yeah. Mm. And then the homophobia. Oh, Moon was rabidly homophobic. When he died, most of the articles that ran left this lovely tidbit in there that, you know, again, he called American women as being descended from a line of prostitutes and that he said that homosexuals were dung eating dogs. Quote, 
Yeah. Quote, quote. Yeah. I mean, that's a slight paraphrase of it, but it's essentially what it boils down to. And another thing too, is that I think the whole idea of being trans was completely erased. Like culturally, I know that it's a joke and a punchline in movies. And so I've heard other second gen say like, yeah, no, trans people were just a joke growing up in the church. But for me, I felt that that was something that was completely invisible. It was something that was never discussed. Or if it was, it was like, hush, hush tones. This is horrible kind of thing. Like my mother was so blatantly homophobic that I think that anything on the LGBTQ spectrum would have just been like horrifying to her. So maybe Lisa, you have a different experience with that, but that was my perception. No, I would agree. I mean, again, when I left, it was the 80s. So the whole conversation on LGBTQ plus was entirely a different conversation completely. Mm -hmm. One of the things that started my leaving was when I went to music camp and I became friends with people who were the first time known to me gay or bisexual. I wrote to my mom, I'm like, what do I do? And she said, well, they're evil and you can convert them or just stay away from them. And that was the first time that I was like, that doesn't make sense. I was Mm -hmm. like, how can that be possible? And it's so funny because my mom will now be like, I could have never said that because one of my dear friends in the church, one of my dearest, dearest people was gay. And so clearly that's not how I felt. And I'm like, clearly it was because it was just all the misquoted parts of the Bible, which say that homosexuality is a sin, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't say that, but all the way they misquoted it. And so clearly the trans wasn't even a concept. But if you go back to like, man created mankind, woman and man, right? And man is the subject and women is the object. Like it's the whole basis of the divine principle, which he didn't write, is based on there being men and women. It's based on the binary system, right? It's absolutely binary. Mm-hmm. And one part of that binary is absolutely better than the other part of that binary. Yeah. And yes, right. I always yeah. wanted to be Korean. Korean's always better. Like <laughs> Korean is the best thing to be. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. I want to talk about womb cleansing because you guys mm-hmm. both mentioned it, I think. What exactly is that process? So it originated again in the early days of the church in a ritual called Pikarun, which translates to womb cleansing, Moon as the Messiah had the blood lineage of God. And so in order for people to, again, engraft themselves onto this restored godly lineage, he had sex with his female followers who are then supposed to have sex with the male followers, etc. And Moon was arrested for this practice. And when he brought the church to the United States, it quickly became clear that this was not going to fly with Americans either. So the way that that is now practiced in the church is through something called the three-day ceremony. So to back up a little bit, supposedly Moon's Blood and or semen is in the holy wine, which couples drink at the blessing ceremony, which is what engrafts you onto Moon's lineage, the godly lineage. But then all first generation couples are also supposed to do a sexual rite called the three day ceremony, which is where the man and the woman come into the bedroom after, you know, Moon has decreed that their separation period is over because he would tell you when you were allowed to have sex, you would disrobe, cleanse yourself with a holy handkerchief, and then have sex 
the first night with a woman on top representing the mother. Use domination or something no, like that. No, that's the second night. Okay. I think it's the mother <laughs> giving birth to the restored Adam or something. There's a handbook for this. And maybe I'll just send you the handbook. The point is, is that there's three nights of having sex in front of Moon's picture. The first two nights, the woman is on top. She represents two different things each night. And then the third night, the man is on top representing the restored Adam dominating Eve and Eve being subjugated into her proper position because men are subject and women are object. The second generation did not have to do that because we were supposedly born of God's lineage because all of our parents did the lovely three-day ceremony. I guess if you fell, if you had sex outside of marriage or before the blessing, then you would have to do the three-day ceremony or something. But I never really got into that. It was one of the weird things that they used to do back in the creepy old days of the church is was what I believed growing up. And so, right. And didn't the purification, I mean, that's part of a lot of Korean shamanistic culture. Yeah, right? That's yeah. one of the books you gave me to read, right? Where it's like yes. there were many messiahs or holy people who would then have sex with their followers in order to purify them. I mean, I think that if you study religion, sex as a religious rite is not an uncommon thing. So personally, yeah. I don't have a problem with this idea of consenting adults participating in religious sex or ritualistic sex. I think it's fine, but just tell people, you know, but that's the whole point about the cult, right? right. Is that you're indoctrinating people into something. If you were to like, be witness to on the streets like hey we're having orgies for god fine if that's what you're into go for it have a blast right but if you're indoctrinating people slowly into something and then you know three months later they're having orgies but that's not what they signed up for and you know their old self would look at this new self going what the fuck happened then there's a problem with the disconnect there and right. then also, you know, when we were there, it was such a puritanical cult yes. where premarital yeah. sex and extramarital sex were completely like the sin of all sins, the fall, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so I'm out many years and I read Nansuk's book, right? And she talks about someone whom I grew up with actually being Moon's illegitimate child. And you're yeah. like, what the what? Right? right. What the fuck? And then, but yeah. then they explain it. Well, that's different. Moon's supposed to do this because it's providential. Any bad sex behavior of the Messiah can be explained because God told him to do that, right? Which is the mm -hmm. same thing Kyojin did as well, right? It's providential for me to do this. God tell me to do this. You're not allowed to do this, but I'm allowed to do this because I'm special and God told me I have to do this to restore mankind. And then the members can't question it. And that's cognitive dissonance, right? That's when right, you shut right. down. Yeah. The three-day ritual, you said that's kind of an old school thing. So you're saying it's generally not practiced now? Do you think maybe in some dark it, corners? No, it's definitely still practiced if you're a first generation. It's just that to my experience, it wasn't something that I was really told about. So <laughs> I like I knew about it. It was something that was talked about in hushed tones, but nobody actually told me like legit what the three-day ceremony was until my 16th birthday. I was at a boarding school and we were having this little party in the girls' lounge and the headmistress comes up and sits me down because apparently there's a rumor that I'm dating a boy that I've talked to once. So she needs to like school me on my purity. And she tells us all about her three-day ceremony. So having this ritual sex with her husband, who is the headmaster. And I was like, oh my God, she's telling me that quote, if I fall, this is going to be something that you have to do. So you have to keep the matching and blessing and your purity in mind all the time. Otherwise you're going to like lose your special status. So it's something that I think if you were to join tomorrow and you got 
hitched up to somebody in a blessing ceremony, you'd probably still do the three-day ceremony. Like it's probably still part of the ritual. It's just, again, because I was a second generation, it wasn't something that I was really talked to about. It wasn't like, here's the birds and the bees in the three-day ceremony. It was just like, we didn't talk about sex at all. You were just supposed Mm -hmm. to like get married and it was supposed to somehow work out for you. Lisa, did anybody talk to you about it? Like in your teen years or something like, by the way. No, like I remember when my mom got matched and I remember when she got blessed and, but yeah, no, it was never like, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine as a 16 year old being explained this thing that happens also after just talking to a dude one time or or whatever, Mm -hmm. were you frightened? I think I was mostly just grossed out. Like, yes. okay, I can't Teenager eat response. My, my cake anymore. <laughs> like this old woman is talking to me about sex with her husband and her husband is my teacher and he has this jockish. He's always like scratching himself and hitting himself with books and stuff to relieve himself. So like the pictures in my mind of her on top, you know, for the first two nights, it was just gross. It wasn't... <laughs> Frightening. And also because it was such a puritanical group, I never really thought about the dynamics of sex. You know, like I knew what sex was. And of course, like kids at school, like, oh my God, do you know what sex is? That's sort of how I found out. But I never really thought about like the emotional dynamics of it and what it would be like to be married to somebody that you probably didn't know who may not speak your language and then having to have sex with that person. When I became older and realized what it was, that was fucking terrifying to me. But I was still too young and naive at that point to be like, that must have been weird for them emotionally and like cognitively. I was just like, nope, that's gross. Jen, you said right before your 22nd birthday, you had just been matched. I was matched. So my story is that Moon stopped matching when I was 15 or 16 and started to have the parents match. And I thought my parents were crazy and not qualified to match me. So that freaked me out. And so I started to kind of try to control and manipulate and be like, you know, there's this really cute boy and I'd really like to be married to him (laughs) because I have a crush on him, which is such a sad thing in general. If you have a crush on somebody, you're like, I guess I have to marry him. But he ended up leaving the church, which really broke my heart. So, you know, at 19, my parents tried to match me to somebody and it didn't work out. And then when I was 20, Moon decided he was going to step back in because apparently when you give your members the power to choose who's going to marry who, it creates a lot of political maneuvering and suddenly people are angling for power and Moon had to consolidate power. So he stepped back into match and he was in his 80s at the time. So everybody was like, oh my God, this is going to be like the only time, blah, blah, blah. So my parents coerced me into going and I thought it's just going to be a matching, right? Because there was usually years between a matching and a blessing. Like with my parents, there was three years. So I was like, I'll get to know this person. And like, if it doesn't work out, I'll just peace out. But instead we were locked in a ballroom of his East Garden compound for three days. By the end of the first night, I was matched to somebody I'd never met before from another country. By the end of the third day, I was married to them. And I did everything that I could to get out. And I had 
no way to get out of that. So we were married in church parlance for two years, or maybe a little bit less than two years before I finally got the paperwork to end the marriage, which was right before my 22nd birthday. Wow. Well, I want to come back to that because I want to know the juicy details as much as you're willing to share of the two years with like an absolute stranger and the rest of your escape, so to speak. But Lisa, I want to hear also about you had a little bit of a different experience. And right now, I just want to talk about kind of like getting out of it. You said you haven't completely told your mom but you had already untethered yourself much earlier. And you also had the weird experience of going back and forth between the two worlds. How do you explain escaping? So long story, somewhat short. It starts with going to music camp, becoming friends with these people. My mom's saying they're evil and me thinking, I don't agree, right? And so I come back and that's the first time I'm questioning. And I came back and I was best friends with one of Moon's daughters and also a blessed child from a 36 couple who was at the age of 16 seduced by our Sunday school teacher. In his defense, he said, I begged them not to make me a Sunday school teacher. I knew I wasn't safe, but whatever. So they're having an affair. She does get pregnant. All this is going on. Nobody knows. And in order to keep anyone from noticing, she spreads rumors about me. And she says that I want to have sex with all the brothers and I'm evil and sinful. And Moon hears these rumors, believes these rumors and makes the decree that only blessed children can play with the true children in order to keep me away. So I go into my senior year of high school, knowing that I'm invaded by Satan because I'm questioning and knowing that the Messiah must know that I'm invaded by Satan because he's banished me from his daughter. And I'm like living with my dad and all that. Whatever. So you followed your mother in as a 10 year old. Now you're at the age of 17, my senior year of high school, you need to make an adult decision. So you're going to pull back a little bit so you can go back and never question again and never ever like commit your life. You're going to get blessed. All those things that I knew I had to do. And I pulled back and I started hanging out on the weekends with my dad and not going to the church every weekend and started getting closer to friends in high school and liking it. <laughs> like never let myself ever get involved in the outside world, even though I lived in the outside world and started experimenting and getting more confused because I found more love there than I actually did in the church. But like, if you look at my high school yearbook, it's like, what will you do? What will you do? What will you do? What will you do? <laughs> All my friends watched me just do this. Started experimenting with alcohol and threw a party for my best friend. And there was a boy at the party because it was his birthday. And I got really drunk and he kissed me and I kissed him back. And then I had a boyfriend. But like, I'm evil. I'm like, and all hell broke loose, screaming at me and everybody's going to fall and all of the stuff of a puritanical cult. And I went off to school. I went up to school at Cornell and my boyfriend, Adam, stayed in New York at NYU. And I determined I would break up with him and I didn't. And then, so that was freshman year, freshman year. I almost jumped off the bridge. Sophomore year, when I finally did have sex with him, I stopped eating and I was about 40 pounds less than I am now. And I'm not that heavy. Junior year, I did a hell of a lot of cocaine, including with the judge. <laughs> and senior year, I just started getting into more and more abusive relationships all in the while going, I'm fine because I'm so good at over-functioning. Mm. Like, now, like my friends from high school or college read the book and they're like, we didn't know you were so broken. My brother, he went to Drew University. There were Moonies he knew at Drew, so he could not leave. And as soon as he got out of college, he sat my mom down and he said, that's it, I'm done. And I just slowly stopped showing up, but still knew Moon was the Messiah and just knew that I deserved to die for what I'd done. And then long, long story short, after college, I got engaged with someone who drank a hell of a lot, drank with my dad and was really quite mean. My dad drank and drugged every day of his life. And there's alcoholism all over his side of the family. And I grew up in a cult. Like when I was anorexic and I ended up going to therapy, my sophomore year, they sent me to see a counselor. 
And I never mentioned the church. I was in my <laughs> freshman year, my sophomore year, I'm like hugely anorexic and I'm in counseling and I never mentioned it because it was so hated by the public world that mm-hmm. I knew that you this knew. counselor would not understand, right? And so I protected it. I never said, oh, maybe I'm anorexic because I grew up in a cult and I just left. Nope. Didn't cross so your mind. Didn't cross my mind. I was just like hunkered down function. So that's the slow way I drifted away. And like in therapy for goddamn years and decades and so much more functional and everything. And then when the book was coming out, someone I met on Twitter told me about ICSA, the organization for cult survivors. And I went to my first ICSA conference and I was just like, oh my God, there's all this other stuff. I was in this room for a second gen and somebody put on the board, like what it does to your brain. And I was like, that's my brain. That's every fight I've had in my marriage. That's literally the way I'm carved and pickled. And I had no clue. And that was 2018 when I first ended up in there. And so since then, it's been like, whoa, now I'm, I've been out for decades. I've done tons of therapy. I've done trauma therapy. I've done all these different things. And now I'm even more looking at what it did to me. I have more appreciation for life. I have a wonderful life. I have deep spiritual practices. I have so much self-love. I've worked really hard on all of it. And just about every aspect of life, I react differently because I was a cult kid. So. so your process was very much, I would say, like string cheese. My parents are queer ladies, and they have this philosophy about queer women breaking up versus straight couples. And they say straight couples are like carrot sticks. They just kind of break it off. And yeah. queer ladies are like string cheese. It's just like a little at a time. And then eventually, maybe they get to the end of the relationship, or maybe they get back together. And it kind of feels like in your case, forgive me if that's a a weird connection, but it feels like yours is the string cheese. It's kind of like layer after layer of cheese goes away and you keep finding out more about yourself as it goes on. Yeah. You know, when they say like, you're like an onion and you unravel the layers of the onion, you know, if you ever knit, right. And you get the yarn and you forget to make it into a ball before you start knitting. And so you end up with this thing that tastes like 12 (laughs) hours to undo that's my brain. So string cheese makes total sense because it's like, there's no way to undo it. It's not like a simple trauma thing. It's like layers upon layers of things that just, and then the Messiah blamed me and banished me for something I never did. Like now I run into those friends and they're like, you were the sweetest, most purest, most innocent of all of us. And I got in trouble. Yeah. Right. You got in trouble for talking to a boy. I got in trouble for not doing a thing. It's a wacky thing. Why did I react that way? Oh, I'm still trying to please the freaking Messiah. Like, I don't believe in him anymore, but it's like, yeah, it's, yeah. Intellectual versus the emotional and the body. This past September, I was out in Minneapolis with my older kid, keeping them company as they went through surgery. And, and as only I would do, I was reading The Body Keeps the Score, which is a huge trauma book, which is a great book. And My Grandmother's Hands, which is a huge racial trauma book. And only I am reading both of them at the same time. (laughs) And I walk out of this place I'm staying and I look at my kid and I say to them, wait, so like when my body has that visceral reaction or my brain just flares, it's actually a trauma response and I can't actually stop it or control it. And my kid is like, are you a fucking idiot? Like you're just getting this now. (laughs) Yes, yes. That's exactly what it is, right? Yes. But it's like, oh, that's why I react that way. So irrationally to this Mm. little thing. Because it's not a little thing when you wrap all the trauma 
That's yeah. right. Yeah. Your kid is Gen Z too. And Gen Z is like very well versed on this stuff. I feel they just like really understand radical self-care and trauma triggers and things like that. And it's like, how old are you? Like you're annoying in so many ways, but <laughs> you're also kind of wise. <laughs> kind of wise. Did you just point out to me that thing? Yes. But like when my friends say, when I say something, they're like, read your blog. I'm like, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I know I write about this all the time, but I still get stuck. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, Jen, I thought of yours from the preliminary call we had as the carrot stick break. But now, as I'm learning more about your process, you were string cheese too. I mean, it took you- That was definitely string cheese. Healing is a lifelong process, which is not to say that we are broken for our entire lives. Yeah, I think it's complicated because anybody that is born or raised in a high demand group, when they leave, it is a complete abandonment of their identity. There's no pre-cult identity to go back to. So I remember not having the cult education language to express this. But what I would say to people is, I feel like I am a refugee from a Soviet bloc country. I can never go back to my homeland. It is behind the Iron Curtain. And sometimes just hearing my mother tongue is both incredibly triggering because it reminds me of my trauma and it makes me homesick. And I think that those are things that many of us carry. So I've spoken to therapists who work with cult survivors, and they do tend to make the connection between refugee children and second-generation cult survivors or multi-generation cult survivors. I think that most second generation and multi-generation, I I think maybe too, even first generation, it is the string cheese. I don't think that there's a single moment that they're like, nope, I'm done. I'm out. There may be a single moment that they can point to as being mentally out, physically in, but it's still a long process to extricate yourself and to get to a point where you have the strength and the bravery Uh, and stop brainwashing yourself. And gaslighting yourself is really the more appropriate term. We are so taught to gaslight ourselves that uh, you are finally able to make that break. And somebody once said, and I, I wish that I knew, I think it was somebody in our Facebook group, Lisa, in our support group, but it may have been somebody else. So I wish I knew who to attribute this to. Somebody said, you have to be willing to basically go to hell in order to get out because that is literally what you are taught. And so that choice has to be better than what it is that you're experiencing in the group. To me, again, there isn't that single breaking moment of the carrot stick. It is a compounding experience where you start to trust your own inner guidance, which you have been so disconnected from for such a long time. And at first, it's such a terrifying experience because you're taught that that's your satanic self, right? That is your evil self. You're being invaded by evil spirit world, whatever. And so it's like, you have to learn to make that not a demonizing thing. And for a long time, I really did demonize that inner self and that inner truth. My mother had been diagnosed with cancer right before I broke my marriage. And because the church believes that it's evil spirit world attacking, she did not tell me, but she told my sister that she believed it was because I was struggling in my blessing, hadn't even broken it at this point, that she had gotten cancer. So it was my fault that she was sick. And so for me, I had to take that, accept that, allow her to believe that was true and still say, 
I am willing to leave. I'm willing to be that evil in their eyes, maybe even in my own eyes for a while, because I carried a weight of having failed for a long time. Maybe some people are like, nope, this is bullshit. I'm out. But I think a lot of us, it's a slower process of deconstructing, of healing and learning that we're not the evil ones. We've just suffered under a lot of baggage that is not our own. I have to totally second what Jen said about not being broken. I always talk about there is hope and you're not damaged. I did believe for a long time that I was damaged. I'm not damaged. I have damage and I have scars, right? I have wounds from what happened, but I'm not broken and I'm not damaged. And I think that's hugely important because we were taught to blame ourselves so much that it's so easy to get caught in that negative. We can even go into trauma and just get stuck in the trauma. It always felt like there were these eight, 10 years of my life that just disappeared. Everyone Mm -hmm. I knew, everyone I loved, every place I'd been, everything that mattered was gone. It was like this big black hole. And for me, maybe not everybody, for me, I had to go back and I had to go to Barrytown and I snuck into Belvedere and went to Holy Rock and saw that it was actually just a rock. But like, I had to do that to be like, this actually happened. I didn't make the whole fucking thing up because it was like gone. My mom was still in for a long time. My brother was out. But other than that, it just disappeared. And it was this very weird feeling of like a big black hole in me. I was listening to an episode of the Falling Out podcast, which season one is all interviews with second generation Unification Church survivors. And the first episode is with a young woman named Donna. And she went to the same boarding school that I did, but the year before I arrived. And one thing that she said is that she had to like go back and look at like announcements that were made about this school and things like that. And like, look at the schedules to remind herself that it wasn't all a fever dream. Mm -hmm. And I think that so many of us do have that experience. Like we leave and it's like our brain almost wants to like shut off all of that. And again, I think part of it is because we were gaslit so much too. And we were taught not to believe our own experiences about things that I completely understand and resonate with what you're saying. Although I have been back to Barrytown as well, multiple times. I take walks there sometimes on a nice day because Father's Trail is a public area in the Hudson Valley. But I don't think I could ever go back to East Garden because it's like a site of trauma for me. And there are a number of places, Belvedere too, just no. No, no, no. Yes, for me, I did because I spent so many good times at holidays Hanging with the two children and playing with the kids and like, but I did. I also went back to Barrytown the first time I just looked at the second time I got permission to walk around with my kid who walked around and like looked at the pictures and looked at the halls and was like, Mm. oh, it's not all evil. I'm like, no, it's not evil. It just is. And then evil was done. Right. It's just the building. It's where I joined. It's where I spent many of my formative years. It's where my mom took me when she tried to convince me not to leave, you know, held a lot for me. The most important thing is finding other people. Like, again, when I left, it was just me. And then it was me and my brother. And so finding other second gens and having conversations. And like when you say Belvedere or like you say these things and they know what you mean and they have the same experience in their brain. And I have met second gens from other cults who I understand and know better than people I've known for decades, even though I don't know them because we're carved so the same. But in finding other people who have the same experience has been like, I would not be as happy and whole even as I am now without having found Jen and the other second gens that I found. It really helps me. Jen, I'd also like to know what you think. And Lisa, if you want to expand on that as well, what are tips for the listeners? The listeners who may be involved in something similar to this, maybe it's not 
the Moonies cult, but they're starting to hear some similarities from what you're saying and what they're experiencing. What's your advice for them? I guess the answer sort of differs depending on where one is in their questioning process. I think that the first and foremost thing is to listen to your gut and trust your gut. And that's hard because generally the cult is trying to cut you off from your intuition. Or if you are in an abusive relationship, the abuser is trying to get you to not trust yourself, but it is usually the best compass that you can use. And so finding information about your group online is also incredibly important. And as Lisa has attested, it's very, very easy to have that knee-jerk reaction of this isn't true, this is just negative, this is evil. But I think that seeking out outside information about the group can be really important. Usually it's something that I think people do in their healing process once they've gone out on the other side. But I do know of instances where people have gotten access to information. And that has been pivotal in terms of the healing. Also, as Lisa mentioned, finding other survivors, or if you are, you know, first generation and you have family on the outside that you can connect with, just connecting to people to create a bit of a safety net is something that is very, very helpful. Lisa, you want to add to that? Yes. To everything Jen said, obviously professional support when you can find it is very helpful. There is the debate over whether you need someone who is a cult aware therapist or not. You could go either way, but finding someone who can help you piece it apart and look at it and understand it is hugely important. I delivered a keynote on Friday and that Tuesday before that I was in therapy and I'd have another like aha moment. I'd be like, but I know that it's in my keynote, right? Like it can be that tricky to hold on to truth, but like the actual truth versus the truth you were given. And therefore I just say a lot of self-care and a lot of self-compassion. I don't think that can be done enough. There is hope you're not damaged. Find someone to help you learn how to take care of yourself because chances are like we were literally taught it was selfish and bad and, and evil and sinful to do anything for ourselves. There are parts of me that I needed that help me survive, but they now get in my way, but they still think they're saving me, right? So I have to be able to say to myself, I know that's the two-year-old and the five-year-old and that part of me, I have all these different parts and you're terrified right now, but I'm actually safe. He's not the Messiah. He can't hurt me. Like I have to literally talk myself down from the terror more often than I care to admit. Right. Yeah. Giving yourself credit. Like if you've managed to get out of an abusive situation like this, whether again, it's a family dynamic or a one-on-one relational dynamic or a larger group, you are stronger, braver, way more courageous than you're going to give yourself credit for. So give yourself some fucking credit, you know, give yourself some fucking credit. Yeah. Hell yeah. Jen, I'm not sure if you want to expand on this, but we didn't get to hear as much about your escaping journey, specifically with leaving the dude that you got matched with. Do you want to talk more about that? I can say that he was a good person. He was younger than me, physically, emotionally, mentally, and that we were taught that you should be able to love anybody. You're a blank slate. You show up and and you're going to be okay loving anybody. And I found that that wasn't true despite the fact that he was a good person. And I found that his acting on the belief systems that we were indoctrinated into was terrifying and triggering. And so in our belief system, we were basically taught that women should submit 
to the men in every way, including sexually. Moon says, you know, that the husband is the owner of the woman's sexual organ. And there's no such thing as consent culture in the Unification Church and purity culture in and of itself, which the Unification Church absolutely co-opted from the evangelical movement. That manifests as sexual trauma. Therapists are beginning to find that just that belief of your body is bad, your body is evil, women are responsible for the thoughts and deeds of men, etc. It manifests in women specifically the same way that sexual assault survivors are experiencing trauma. So for me, that started coming out in my relationship. And so it was something that I didn't have language for, but I knew that in order to be safe, I had to escape that. It's not a judgment of the young man, but it was more a judgment of this is a broken system. And the only way that I will be able to exist in this broken system is if I kill myself, like my inner self, to fit what they need. And I couldn't allow that to happen. So that's more of the metaphorical explanation of it. But I think that that's probably the most accurate way of looking at it as well. Got it. There's just a quick thing that popped into my mind. Do you guys think that you have cult radar because of your experience? Yes. Can Do you see other people and you're like, oh, they're like right there on the precipice? Yeah. I mean, I love listening to Sarah Edmondson and her husband in the podcast a little bit culty because they totally identify that cultic behavior is a spectrum. It's not like this is the hard line. Mm -hmm. Cultic behavior is human behavior. It manifests in all walks of life. The three of us together, if we hung out enough, we might have some culty behavior. So I think that when you begin to deconstruct it and educate yourself about it, you're like, oh, I see that here. That's a little bit culty. Or you can straight up look at something and be like, that looks like a cult. Like, oh, guys, no. I mean, we sang Kumbaya and held hands, but it's like totally not a cult. No, like some of us can look at stuff and be like, no, that is legit. They're employing all eight criteria of Robert J. Lifton's thought reform, you know, I think that in ways it's good. And in ways it also makes me have stronger boundaries in terms of getting to know people because I'm a lot more suspicious, I suppose, than I might otherwise have been in a different walk of life. (laughs) The two things that come to mind is many, many years ago when I first called into Al-Anon and started getting a little more healthy. I'm not calling this cult in any way, but someone took me to hear Marianne Williamson speak in a church and of course miracles and i was just like <laughs> and like and i like a lot of stuff she says i think is great a lot of the course of miracles stuff is great i never went any closer to it because i was just like get me the fuck out of this church red flags everything going off you know i'm very good friends like i just did this thing and it's really great and she's like and you come for the weekend and you leave your cell phone and nobody can go home and i was just like not oh, doing are, it they have all the indoctrination techniques absolutely there. right and because and it can give you positive experiences like if you watch the vow you see that there was a lot of positive stuff that they offer at first and that they talk about and that they it's give love you bombing it's love bombing exactly even and then the good sudden, stuff yeah, it's part of the absolutely. the narcissistic cycle of abuse like all the good stuff even the love bombing that is right. part Just of how they lure you in wins you and i remember when i went back to hear moon's daughter speak at the manhattan center oh <laughs> right it was called love and life ministries, ministries. at that point or something yeah. right and everyone's like hi how are you and friendly and loving and i'm like Wow, no wonder I loved it so much. No wonder I miss it. 
I will never have that drug again. I don't actually miss it. But so, yeah, I notice it. People say something to me like, and no way I'm going in there and you should not go in there either. (laughs) Yeah. It's almost like a heightened sense of awareness of it. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I will say that many years ago we were in Charleston or something and I was with a bunch of people and I think they were Hare Krishna, even though they were dressed like regular people. And I saw them going to talk to someone and I say this out loud because I'm calling myself on it. And I was like, that's what that is. Let's get the hell away from there. And in retrospect, and now I would be like, excuse me just a second, please don't talk to this person, (laughs) right? I would step in and try because again, anybody's susceptible. I would try. And I feel like I'm on a, you know, one person mission to spread some truth, right? And anybody's susceptible. So if I could be like, let me just tell you what I think is happening here before you go home with this person and read their book further. Mm different woo and spiritual groups say, this is the age of Aquarius. This is the age of no guru. It's time to get rid of the guru. It's time to get rid of the cult leader because nothing's more important than the truth that you can find within. Easier said than done, obviously. According to astrologists, we just got into the age of Aquarius. So it might take some time for this shit to kick in. Have you seen that it's changing or do you think it's staying the same? Cults are just looking different now. I don't know that I have enough of a finger on the pulse, but I hope that people are at least given access to more information to be able to understand what's happening to themselves or to their friends and to research a little bit better. But again, I think that cultic behavior is human behavior. And so I think that it's how do you eradicate something that is innately human? The desire to belong as Lisa talked about, the desire to have this sense of sureness about your life in an existence that is so full of uncertainty. If somebody is offering you a course or a program or whatever that's going to give you that certainty, unless we as a species evolve beyond that and sit with our uncertainty and learn to be comfortable with our uncertainty and see the beauty in it, then I don't see cultic behavior changing. Now, maybe evolutionarily speaking, we will get to that point, but I don't know. I really yeah. don't know. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Yeah. I don't know. Even well, as you say that, my little red flags went off. Like, who says that? And are they telling you how to yeah. follow your own self, right? Like, it's, it's right, right. Yeah. good point. It's what, it's what we crave, right? I do believe yeah. I need to follow myself. I have learned to look to my own truth versus other people's truths. But I, I, I do think it's human nature to look for truth, right? It is. So that's a scary right. thing. Yeah. I have one last question for you guys. It's something that I ask everybody on the show. And it's what's the most profound spiritual paranormal woo experience you've ever had in this case, because we talked so much just about your Mooney's experience. Was there something specifically from that time period that felt paranormal or was otherworldly? In the church, we were taught to believe that dreams were usually from spirit world. And so I remember having a lot of dreams about moon or the moon family, but it was always like moon saying, I give you permission to do this thing that you want or have this thing that you want or whatever. And I think the rational part of my brain wants to explain it as like, oh, my inner self was looking to assert itself. I wasn't able to do it at the time. And so like my subconscious was letting moon come in and say those things. But for me, those were spiritual experiences as a young person who, again, was trying to assert themselves. And so it gave me, I think, a little bit of empowerment at the time 
to trust myself, even when the group was telling me something else. I didn't necessarily believe that I was like channeling moon or anything like that, but it was just like, oh, I had this really spiritual dream where true father said that I had like the right idea about this. So I'm going to trust myself kind of a thing. And so, yeah, like those were very important things to me during those years. Everything in the church was a spiritual experience. Like we explained everything that way. So yeah, I mean, that was just the language that I had access to. Like even when I was 12 years old and I had a bike accident, I wasn't wearing a helmet. I had to go to the hospital. And my father, who is incredibly abusive, was the only parent that was home at the time. So he took me to the hospital. He brought me home and he never yelled at me once that I could remember. And my mother came home from a conference the next day to come and tend to me. And I said to her, mom, I had this spiritual experience where I realized dad really loves me. Like that was just the language that we had. So spiritual Mm -hmm. experience is moony language. Wow. Lisa. So I'm going to tell you two things before and one thing after, which are just my most wooey experiences, which I don't talk about often. When we were living with my grandfather, my grandmother had passed my mom and my brother and I and I remember there were nights she didn't come home even before the church. And I was always afraid she was going to die and leave and all that stuff. But I remember going downstairs. She slept in the, on, the, on a futon in the dining room, the old dining room. And I went downstairs and she was in her bed and I leaned over to touch her and I fell through her because she wasn't actually there. And then there's another time I remember, and I haven't, I've just forgotten this. I haven't said this whenever. I remember taking like the big, like a big embroidery needle and sticking it into myself and pulling it out. Now, did that happen? I don't know, but I have real, and I I wrote a memoir. I don't have many memories. I have these very strong memories of that. And my other really woo experience is my, let's see, must have been my junior year of college. I'm at Cornell and Adam at that point is at Binghamton. And I took a bus down to visit him if they go to Binghamton. And while I was on the bus, I got like out of body. I couldn't focus. Like I can't even describe how like completely not okay I was mentally and psychically or whatever and I got off the bus and like I don't know something grounded me whatever and I found out later my mom was undergoing anesthesia at that time Mm -hmm. when that happened Wow! so and that's when I'm always like and I was at a point where I was like don't even talk to her right because she was still in and I was clearly out and I was evil and I was fallen and you know anyway all of that so those are my like they got nothing specifically to do with the church but they're definitely my most woo spiritual experiences of whatever the hell they were. Right. Yeah. You reminded me, Lisa, that my best friend and I, I'll usually like have a dream about her or something and I'll text her and I'll be like, Hey, is everything okay? And she'll be like, Oh my God, I can't believe you reached out because X, Y, and Z or something. And it's just so interesting how connected you are to some people sometimes. It sounds Mm -hmm. like you're both a little psychic. If you believe in like the collective unconscious, right? We would call it like we're spiritually connected to that person. That's, that's Mooney language. That's the Mooney language. Yeah. yeah. I do want to go back real quick, just to the needle thing. You saw, you have a physical needle and you just whoop and then boop. That boop. is my memory. Yeah. Whoop and whoop and I'm fine. Exactly. But like, and you have to understand, I really don't remember a lot, but I have distinct memory. I can tell you where I'm standing and I do it and I pull it out. Right. So is it true? Memory is a really weird thing. This I know for certain, but I remembered that one for a very long time. I don't know. Interesting. Whoop, whoop. And and your grandma was physically there from your memory and you went, my mom, whoop. my mom, I saw her mom. and I fell right through her. Yeah. Like saw her lying in her bed and I fell right through her because she wasn't there. Ooh, spooky. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs>
I love hearing about people's most woo experiences at the end of each episode. In real life, I ask people that same question all the time. What is the most woo, paranormal, supernatural experience you've ever had? And I have come to the conclusion that most people, even the most seemingly anti-woo types, are carrying a secret woo story. Just saying. As promised, here are some absolutely bonkers quotes from Sun Myung Moon before we leave each other. This is one of Moon's speeches from April 16, 2000 at the Belvedere. Women in the secular world are like trash cans. They are bringing the world into ruin. Just by one mistake, Eve's, the world has been destroyed. These women are making many mistakes. You should not trade your love organ for the entire nation or world. Nobody should get close to your love organ. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Women in the secular world are like trash cans. Love it. Okay, this is a piece called The Time of Liberation for the Family of World Peace from September 8th, 1996. Father's conclusion is that many American women have inherited the lineage of prostitutes, but you don't feel badly about it. American women feel superior to and scorn prostitutes, but in reality, these prostitutes are earning money. This is their job. However, American women are even worse because they practice free sex just because they enjoy it. Who is the owner of love? God is the owner of love. The owner of love gave you your spouse and assigned you to become this man's wife. Therefore, you stand as a public couple and your union should last eternally. American women have inherited the lineage of prostitutes. Who knew? For my queer female-identifying listeners... This one's for you. It's from Where is the Base for the True Ideal. Amongst you women, are there any who feel they do not need men? Please raise your hands if you feel so. If there is such a woman, you have to plug up your love-making organ with concrete. I'm not putting concrete in my love organ, I'll tell you that right now. These are some quotes that Jen sent to me. If you want to investigate more of Moon's toxic word salad, links to these quotes will be in the show notes. You can purchase Lisa's book, To the Moon and Back, A Child Under the Influence, at her website, lisaconewrites.com or Amazon. You can check out and purchase Jen's amazing prints on her website, jenkiaba.com. And of course, those links will be available to you in the show notes as well. Okay, till next time, y'all. Thank you for following The Woo with me today. If you love what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to Follow The Woo wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're feeling particularly stoked about this show, please leave a review and or rating. You can also support this podcast by becoming a member of The Order of Woo, where you'll get community access and loads of extra goodies exclusively on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash follow the woo. The Order of Woo patrons bolster this podcast and community and allow for the creation of more content, products, services, and events over time. Every little bit helps, and I'm so grateful for the patrons who have joined the Order already. If you've experienced something magical, mystical, or just downright weird and want to discuss it, or if you're interested in sharing your expertise, or if you want me to research a Woo topic with you or for you, please email me at followthewoo at gmail.com. Join me next week for another woo topic. And remember, tell the truth, 
be nice to each other, and if it feels right, 